All right, we're having a little issues with the microphone. Can you hear me okay? Is it on? Excellent. Um, <clears throat> go ahead and pull out your notes. looks like this and your Bible that may or may not look like this. And open to Luke chapter 9. We are starting a new series this morning, and we're going to run it right up through Easter. And um, <clears throat> it's basically going to be looking at the, some difficult things that Jesus said. And... Um, I know if you're like me, you enjoy, uh, well, maybe you don't enjoy it, but there are certain parts of Jesus' message, wouldn't you agree, that are, that are user-friendly, uh, that are seeker-sensitive, that really make you feel good and homey inside. Uh, and then there are just other parts of Jesus' message that come along, and you just go, ouch, that kind of is prickly, and that hurts, and that's not very user-friendly, and that's... Frankly, that's just hard to get. I don't even understand that. And why did Jesus have to say that? I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I've actually thought this before. I was a Bible college student. Thank you, son. And um, I was a Bible college student. We're studying through the Bible. And uh, I had some really smart professors that showed me some things in Scripture. It opened my eyes to some things in Scripture I'd never seen before. I remember thinking this. I thought, man, if some of my opponents, if some of my critics, I used to work at a bank. I worked at a bank for years and years. And um, work with a lot of people who flat out oppose Christianity. And uh, every chance I had, I told them I was going to Bible college to be a pastor because I thought that would generate some good dialogue. And um, it did. <clears throat> uh, but I always thought this. I thought, man, if they knew some of these parts of the Bible that I'm learning in Bible college, they would nail me to a wall. I don't know how to answer this. I don't know why Jesus said that, frankly. I don't know what that means. That's really, really difficult. And I'm still working through it myself. Fortunately, none of my opponents really read the Bible that much, and so they weren't coming to me uh, equipped in that same way. But this series, what we want to look at is some of these hard and difficult sayings that Jesus um, had and, and how they apply to our life and, and what we're supposed to do with them. <clears throat> Let me ask you this. How many of you this week, by show of hands, received, um, I think they call them courtesy calls, which is curious, but it's, um, it's a sales call. Uh, either a sales call by phone or by um, direct mail, or by visiting your home. How many of you received at least one of those in the last seven days? Let me see your raise of hands. Look around, everyone. Okay, that's a lot, right? There are some people spending a lot of money, a lot of man hours, uh, trying to get our attention. And what's curious about this is um, we have people come to our door all the time, and what they're doing is they are, they are offering something to us, right? Now, if I offer you uh, something... Uh, in one context, that seems pretty nice. Like, we offer one another hospitality. We offer one another gifts. We offer one another things to, to provide. But in this context, what does it mean to, to offer something for you? Have I got an offer for you? What does that mean, someone? What? Yeah. We want, I want to sell you something, right? <clears throat> one of the things that we do, we don't watch many commercials in our home because we have TiVo. And... Uh, that's God's blessing to, uh, to skip commercials. But, but periodically, we, we'll have a commercial come on. And um, one of the things that, that my own household is trained to do, they, they kind of just know this, um, is to look at what is the message being sent? What are they trying to sell us? What are they trying to tell us? What are they trying to kind of get into us and, and say to us with this commercial? And we talk about that sort of thing. Even with movies that we'll watch, we'll say, now, now what are some of the themes that, that this movie producer is trying to teach us and tell us? And does that line up with truth? Is that true? The reality is this. Most of our week, much of our week, I would say, we are being trained up. We are seeped in consumerism and in uh, kind of Madison Avenue training. Which, which promotes different kinds of ideas than I see in the Scriptures. And if we're not careful, if we're not on our guard, it will be very, very easy to let those things uh, just really begin to seem normal to us. That's one of the reasons I really enjoy being in other countries. I don't get to travel a whole lot. I rarely travel to just go travel. Most of my traveling has all been done with the purpose of sharing the Gospel in some way, shape, or form. And uh, I'll, I'll go to places. It's, it's a great thing to say, hey, I'm going to Mexico. And people go, oh, sweet, Cancun, Puerto Vallarta, where are you going? And you go, Tecate. And they're like, oh, is that where the beer's made? Like, they don't know why you would want to go to Tecate. They're, they just don't get that at all. And there's no really resorts in Tecate very much. But there's a lot of poor people who need houses. 
And so that's why you go to Takati. Or you go to Rosarito and they go, oh, cool, there's some good party in there. Yeah, but there's also an orphanage there. And we're going to go and just love on kids and um, provide things for them. And that's pretty curious to most people. Most people look at that and go, gee, that's weird. That's, that's kind of different. But when you're in other countries, what you realize very quickly is how little other people need to be happy. You sit there and just play with kids and... Uh, you know, a kid can play with a rubber band. I played with this one kid with a rubber band. Actually, it attracted some attention, so we had about four or five kids. But what we did was we shot the rubber band, and then the kid tried to catch it. And then he'd get it and bring it back to me, and I'd shoot it again. And that got old after 10 minutes. So we went up to a dirt mound, right, and did it off the dirt mound because we got better air. Bottom line is, you sit around with these kids, and you go, man, they're really, really happy. They're content with this. It's a dirty old rubber band that I want to wash my hands afterwards because it's just nasty. But you know what? They're, they're fine with it. And then you get back to the States and you just realize, wow, Lord, we don't need all this stuff. And it, it just, it's, a, it's a reset time. I hope when you come to the Scriptures, it's a reset for your brain. I hope you're disciplining yourself. I hope you're training up your family to reset your brain and say, now let's look at what's really true. We just went off to Disneyland. That's a great time. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's lots of things right with that. But now let's, let's reset our brains a little bit, right? That's not where we live. That's not real life. That's not what God called us to do, was to experience Disneyland. What happens when all of this consumerism kind of starts to seep into our spirituality? You know what happens is this. We become God. I haven't been to a Burger King in I don't know how long, probably a couple of years. But I think Burger King is the one where you walk in and you get it your way. Isn't that right? Isn't that Burger King's message? Wait, we'll do it your way. I do know that Starbucks, which I frequent often, I was there this morning, um, I know that I can tell them how I want it exactly. I'm in charge. And because they're paid to do so, they cater to me and to what I want done. Some of you work in the, the uh, food service industry or, or the, you know, courtesy industry. I was a courtesy clerk, which is a fancy way of saying I was a bagger at Lucky for a long time. You know what my job was? I got paid to please the customer and to make sure that, that, that things were good with them. What happens is, if, if we have that happening to us all week long, some of you are in, in jobs where you're the boss. You're calling the shots for other people. People are your friend because you can give them something. And again, what happens if we don't train our mind? Uh, again, this whole Church in HD series, a part of that was just to train our minds of who we are in Christ. You're a big shot at work? Fantastic. You are a small shot when it comes to the, to the cross. You're a lowly bagger or whatever the job might be? Fine. When you come to the cross, you're equal with your boss. That's what the, that's what the cross is all about. That's what coming together as believers is all about. There's no distinction when we're lifting our eyes up to Jesus. Christianity light is what I would call people who say this. I want kind of a, you know, taste great, less feeling religion, right? I really like Jesus. A lot of what he has to say was really good. He was a good teacher. He went around helping the poor, and I buy into that. I really like that. He, he offered people stuff. He healed people. He was non-discriminatory. I like that Jesus a whole bunch. But the less filling part is there's just certain parts I'd like to just kind of remove from, from the Bible and cut out. And there have been several organized attempts at saying, let's just remove some of those parts that are really difficult that Jesus said. That's Christianity light. And I honestly don't know how you can call yourself a Christian, a Bible-believing Christian, and subscribe to, to Christianity light. Christianity light is not something new. Much of the New Testament was actually written to counter the heresies of the day. Christianity light leads to heresy. It leads to saying, I want the, the truth, but I want it my way like a Burger King burger. I want it decaf, no whip, 2%, whatever, whatever, whatever. That's the order. And we don't like it when someone says, well, no, here's what your coffee order is. I'm telling you. We go, wait a minute, I'm in charge. And we bring that to God, there's real problems. False saviors emerge. There's a song by Rich Mullins, and he says, Our vain imagination. God, you're so far beyond our vain imagination. 
You ever imagine heaven? You know what usually comes out of our mouths when we talk about heaven? For me, it might be you know the perfect day snowboarding. Or it might be this, or it might be that. That's vain. That's just like, it's like I have such a small little picture of heaven and who God is. That's the best I can kind of come up with. And God's just so far beyond that. What we want to do in this series is we want to, we want to kind of shatter this, <clears throat> this vein uh, or this Christianity light kind of a thing. 2 Timothy 3.1, don't turn there, just write this down. But it says this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Terrible times. All right, here's the setup. There's terrible times coming, and here's what he says after that. People will be lovers of themselves. Paul's writing to Timothy, a young pastor, and he says, there are terrible days coming. And you know what's going to be the hallmark of that? People will love themselves. Doesn't that go counterculture to what almost every Disney movie tells us? Disney says, man, love yourself. Believe in yourself. You can do it. Fulfill your dreams. Now, there's a whole compartment of that that we're not going to get into that could be okay. But what happens is when we begin to elevate ourselves into a position of God and we say, here's the Jesus that I believe in, and He doesn't even exist, it leads to chaos. It leads to terrible days, as Paul said. The extreme version of this is Jonestown, Guyana. The extreme version of this is David Koresh in Waco, Texas. Cults that started off kind of down a biblical path, but lovers of themselves. And it ended in utter and total chaos and destruction. And it was, in fact, from the pit of hell. And that's what happened. He goes on to say in 2 Timothy 4.3, For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers who say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Do you know that Jesus infuriated people by his sound doctrine? Ultimately, really, it was his sound doctrine, his preaching of himself as Messiah, as the payment for sin, as the promised one, that led to his death. They killed him for it. I mean, that's an understatement. They won't put up with sound doctrine. Yeah, they won't put up with his right. They ended up killing Jesus for that. I recognize that from now till Easter, I and others may infuriate you. My prayer is that what we would do would be in the Spirit, that what we would do would be according to Scripture, and that if there's any infuriating going on, it would be the deep conviction of sin that's a cancer in our life and must be removed or it leads to death. That's the only kind of infuriating I want to go around doing. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> God, we're just talking about a really heavy subject here. As we already sang as a congregation, the cross bids us to come and to die. And Father, this morning, as we have young and old right here in our midst, we're family. And all of us are on a journey and all of us have questions. All of us don't get some or much of what you say and what you're about. And Holy Spirit, I invite your presence here this morning to not only speak through me, but most importantly, to speak through your written word, to guide us into all truth. In your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> if you have in your outlines there, I have a question there, raising the bar, question mark. At NBC... Uh, we want to be a church that both lowers the bar and raises the bar. And here's what I mean by that. <clears throat> I really see Neighborhood Bible as a church that wants to lower the bar for people who want to enter into the dialogue of spirituality. I want to lower the bar of what it takes to walk in on a Sunday morning, be a part of a worship gathering like we're doing right now, and not need some decoder thing of language like, what is that talking about? Why did everyone suddenly stand up? Why all the hand signals? Why did everyone do this or that? I want to I make the, uh, the gate wide for, for people to come and enter. I want to raise the bar, though. I think our church ought to be about raising the bar when it comes to deciding or it comes to talking about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We want to lower the bar for access. We want to raise the bar when it comes to saying, here's what a Christian is. Do you know that nowhere in the Bible does it describe a Christian 
a good Christian person, as one who attends church regularly and faithfully, tithes 10% and does some good deeds throughout the week and attends a Bible study once or twice a week. And yet many in America would define that as a pretty good Christian person. Many people, when I share with them I'm a pastor at a church, they say, oh, and they immediately jump to the good Christian. You must go to church. You must tithe. You must do good deeds. You must attend Bible studies. Just so happens that I would say all of those things are a part of my life. But that is nowhere to be found in terms of what it takes to be a Christian, of what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. Look at how Jesus did this. Jesus lowered the access point by dining with famous cheaters, by being a regular guy in everyday places, uh, and, and ultimately by becoming one of us, right? Philippians 2, the song we just said, Jesus, you're a servant. You're the ultimate humble servant. Philippians 2 says he set aside all of his godness and he just said, I'm going to become one of these people. The way he taught, he used very ordinary, regular kinds of things. Faith like a mustard seed, bread of life. I am the vine, you are the branches. These were normal, everyday things, regular language. He lowered the bar as to who was in the club as to who could come and dine with the great king. And yet Jesus also raised the bar by pointing out truth. Being a Christian is costly. It's it's none of those things that I just talked about. Attendance, 10%, good deeds. It's total surrender to a brand new way of life. And that's why he depicted it as being born again. It's a radical reversal of your life. And it's complete and total surrender. Such that you could sing a song like we just sang that says, all of my dreams, I surrender. One of the reasons people should raise their hands in worship, A, it's biblical, but B, is it's a picture of surrender. You pull a gun on me right now, I'm going to show you, I have no gun. I'm going to keep preaching so you can shoot me. But this is a picture of surrender, right? People put their hands up. It can also be a little child, right? Crying out to dad. But total surrender. I don't know if you've ever caught yourself in the middle of a worship song, stop singing, because you go, that is not true of me. Every day, it's you I live for. Every day? Wow, Lord, and sometimes I've just stopped the words even. Sometimes I sing it as a prayer. I want this to be true, Lord. You and I both know that's not where I'm at right now, but I want it to be true. Jesus raised the bar probably most pointedly in in the Sermon on the Mount. Go home and read today with your family as an individual, as a couple. Matthew 5 through chapter 7. And in the Sermon on the Mount, ultimately Jesus did this. He said, here's what you thought God wanted in the law. All you've done is to try and do kind of the outward picture of that. Let me come and show you what God had intended all along. He said this phrase often, you have heard it said. In other words, this is what you've been taught. This is what the synagogue has brought you up. This is what your parents told you. This is what your forefathers told you. But then he'd follow up with this. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. But I say. And that's why people said, man, this guy teaches like no one we've ever heard. He thinks he's the boss or something. He was God. Here's what God intended all along. All of the Sermon on the Mount is pointing out to show is that we need grace in our life. You think you're not committing adultery? You think you're not murdering people? You think your motives are pure? You think you're worry-free? Dig a little bit deeper. Jesus comes and says, you can't fulfill the law, period. It's to point out our desperate need for a Savior from the most self-righteous, seemingly good person you know. To the worst despicable person, all are equal in their inability to fulfill the law, to please God. And that's what Jesus was coming to say. Hey guys, take off the mask, it's okay. We're all in the same boat. We all need me, is what he was saying. We're in the middle of politics right now, and don't worry, I'm not going to jump into politics with you, but think about being the campaign manager of Jesus Christ. Just, I mean, for a second. You're the campaign manager. He's roaming the countryside. In essence, he's on the back of the train. He's kissing babies, all the stuff. He's giving speeches. And right along the time when he starts to gain some momentum, man, Jesus, that really worked good. Your numbers are hot. That whole healing thing, the feeding of the 5,000, good one. Those are some great, great things. Just some dynamite stuff. You're on a roll. 
And uh, he would begin to get popular. And then Jesus would just seem to take great pleasure in thinning the crowds out by alienate, you know, alienating them by some comment. And people would just go, huh? What happened to the free bread and fish? You know, what was... I didn't sign up for that. And again, the campaign manager of Jesus would just be like, man, you're making it really tough on me, Jesus. This was said to Jesus after he was teaching in church one day. Again, don't turn there, but John chapter 6 records this. Many of his disciples said this, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And it went on to say this, as a result of this, by the way, Jesus answered that by going into some more hard sayings. Hate your father and mother. Hate your own life. Verse 66 of that same chapter, he says this, As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. The same is true in churches today. You get welcomed at the door. You get a nice name tag. You're allowed to bring your coffee into the sanctuary. All is going pretty good. And then some preacher gets up and preaches the word and says, You're a sinner and you need to turn from your sin. And gets a little awkward. And you go, Man, I didn't sign up for any of that. And people withdraw. And they don't want to walk with this Jesus anymore. As a church, as an individual Christian, we ought to be like Jesus. We ought to call people to what Jesus called people to. Not a good time, not a club, not community, not a sense of family, although it may be all of those things on some level. But to come and die. And that's the invitation of Jesus. Of all the difficult things that we're going to look at in the next coming weeks, I wanted to jump in with the toughest one. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 23. Vivian read this earlier, but I want you to see it for yourself. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? And I'll stop there. <clears throat> this begins to make us ask questions. Are we talking about a literal death? What if I begin to follow Jesus? What if I, what if I take Him at His word? And, and what if it all ends up being for naught? What if I waste my life? I just got done going through with a couple of college students John Piper's book. I highly recommend it. Don't waste your life. That's the title. Don't waste your life. And in it, he explores this, what this looks like, what it would look like to gain the entire world and in the end, be just taken and go, man, I blew it. I was climbing the wrong ladder. I just kept climbing and going, I've got to get to the top. And I found out the top was the bottom and everyone changed the price tags and, oh, I wish someone had told me. Jesus is laying it out. He's telling you. In this book, he recounts the story of Ruby and Laura. In April 2000, Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon, West Africa. Ruby was over 80. Single all her life, she poured it out for one great thing. To make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor and the sick. Laura was a widow and a medical doctor pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed, the car went over a cliff, and both were instantly killed. If you're a newspaper reporter, the headline would say something like this, Tragedy for two elderly Americans in West Cameroon. Church, the question to us would be this, was that a tragedy? And the resounding answer in light of the passage we're talking about today is absolutely not. It's utter glory that they died being like Jesus. There's no tragedy there unless this life is all that there is. <clears throat> what about us, church? Are we wasting our life? Are we investing our life well? Emma, I want you to come on up right now. I've asked Emma to, to come and help me out with a little something. And uh, she's going to make her way up here. Emma is... Uh, how old are you, Emma? Seven years old. Emma is seven years old, and she is going to... <clears throat> 
Um, she's going to be trying to get this $2 bill. Come on up, right up, right up here. Thanks, sweetie. All right, now, this is a little game that grandparents love to play with their grandkids. And what you need to do is you have to have your hand, it's not a magic trick or anything, you have to have your hand out like this, okay? And I'm going to place this $2 bill kind of right here in your hand, okay? You can't be touching it. Are we good? Okay, you're perfect. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to let go. What happened there? I'm going to let go like that, and what you need to do is to just go ahead and try and catch that. And it's really a lot harder than you would think. Now, if you, if you catch this, I'm going to give you this $2 bill, okay? So, um, <clears throat> it's not working out so well. Um, if you catch it, you're going to have to go ahead and, and just keep it. And, you know, I'm not being very fair. I'm going to move it up just a little bit higher, okay? You keep your hand the same. This is going to give you more react. Hang on one sec. Emma, we need to work this out here. You need to try and catch it, okay? This is really hard, huh? Ah! All right, ready? One, two, three. Close. Yay! Give it up. That's yours, Emma. Go sit down. Emma is an all-star. Thanks for coming up, Emma. $2 bill, just like that. All she had to do was catch it. You know what? How many of us, how many of us could look at what Emma was just doing and go, man, that's exactly the American dream in some ways. Ah! I almost got it. I mean, it's right there within our grasp. Things are going good. The bills are being paid. Your health is good. You've got vacation coming up. Then you go on vacation and get sick and someone breaks into your house. And you're like, what? I mean, it was right there. And it's this elusive kind of a thing. Now, here's the catch is that some of us go, man, people catch $2 bills all the time, all around me. And I'm never catching them. I'm always just a split second too late with that silly thing. Wouldn't it be a kicker, though, if after all that effort, poor Emma just sat there and just kept trying, she finally got it, and then she goes, oh, wow, I'm going to take it to the bank, and it's counterfeit. <laughs> Don't worry, that's not counterfeit, Emma, that's real. But wouldn't that be a bummer? I mean, she's invested all this time trying to catch that silly thing, and then she goes to redeem it, and it's absolutely worthless. Worthless paper. And she goes, I could have been outside playing I could have been singing. I could have been doing whatever things I enjoy doing. And here I was trying to catch this silly $2 bill that ended up being worth absolutely nothing. That's what Jesus is saying here. What on earth would it profit someone to gain a $2 bill if it's counterfeit? That's the paraphrase version, but that's what he's saying. The invitation of Jesus is a call to, to discipleship. And the first thing I want to just uh, draw your attention to, this is in your notes, you don't have to fill anything out. You can just uh, circle the word deny if you, if you like to fill things out. Uh, I filled it out for you. But the first one is to deny yourself. The verb used for deny is the absolute polar opposite of the word confess. Now let me ask you as a Christian, who are we to confess? The Lord, Jesus Christ. We're to confess Christ. You know what the word confess means? It simply means to acknowledge, basically. I'm going to acknowledge Christ. I'm going to acknowledge Christ in my spending. I'm going to acknowledge Christ in how I care myself when I walk out to the parking lot. I'm going to acknowledge Christ in my dealings with other people. The opposite of that would be to deny. And some of us find it so easy and natural to acknowledge the self and to deny Christ. Right? The exact kind of opposite flip-flop of what we're being told to do by Jesus. Peter tasted of this. He denied Christ not once, but three times. The word deny, really, Jesus is using this word that in essence meant this, to refuse to associate with. And Jesus is saying we're to deny self. We're to refuse to associate with ourselves. Now that can start getting kind of weird. Like, are we a split personality? Me, myself, and I? Do we get a, a breakup? Like, how does that work? But if you think about it, think about Peter denying Jesus at his trial. He was acknowledging himself, right? 
He was confessing himself in that he was worried about himself and thinking about himself and worried about his reputation. And he denied. He refused to associate with Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes and says, we're to deny self, refuse to associate with self, and confess Christ. Now, some people have had some strange teaching over the centuries of what self-denial looks like. And I want to first just kind of walk you through what this does not mean. Okay? First thing it does not mean is this. It does not mean developing a weak, non-assertive, false, humble persona. This is the person who's a complete doormat. And they think that Jesus is calling them to a life of having stripped themselves of their personality. God has wired some of you very opinionated. And some of you need to tone it down. But you know what? If God made you that way, He probably made you with a prophet's kind of spiritual gifting. You see things as black and as white. And there's no middle ground. And you know what? The church needs people like that. All through the centuries, God's people need prophets and prophetesses. People who just say it like it is. They probably need to err on the side once in a while of speaking the truth in love, right? And adding the in love part of it. But becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you lay that all aside and say, well, I don't have an opinion on that anymore. Whatever you think is just fine. The false humble person is the one who consistently and constantly is telling you how it's not about them. And after a while, you begin to realize it really is about you, isn't it? Because all we ever talk about with you is how it's not about you. And the word you comes up so much that I find myself thinking and talking and we're just spending the whole time talking about you and how it's not about you. And if you think about it, false humility is really a very subtle form of pride. The opposite of pride is someone who just, in the the Christian context, says it's all about Jesus. So the false humble person is not necessarily denying themselves either. Refusing to associate with self, they're actually turning it inside. Jesus wasn't like this. The very one that we're claiming to follow, he, he didn't lay himself down and stop having opinions or high morals or convictions. To the humble, he was gracious and patient. But to the proud, he shot right back. And he was, he was challenging them. And he was looking them in the eyes and he was confronting them. His message became more and more confrontational as the cross approached. He wasn't one who just didn't have an opinion. Paul, who said, follow me as I follow Christ, was not a meek, mild, non-assertive person. He was a bit abrasive at times. Denying himself didn't mean he stopped having an opinion. The disciple of Jesus isn't called to be a doormat, but a willing servant. Elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus calls us to shrewdness, to courage, to be resolute in our convictions, to resist evil, to defend orphans. If some bully is picking on an orphan or someone other than them, you can't go up and go, excuse me, sir, it's just really not nice that you're enslaving children and selling them worldwide. Do you mind stopping? That's just not going to work, is it? You'll get a punch in the nose and you'll feel sorry for yourself. Jesus wants to go in there as spiritual warriors and defend orphans. And you can imagine how that would look. Here's something else it does not mean. Denying certain pleasures in an effort to pay God back for our sin. Ephesians 2.8 For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. No amount of self-denial is ever going to earn favor with God. And don't let anyone ever tell you differently. People in other countries and centuries in this place whip themselves, deny themselves, do these things to pay back God. You know what we're trying to do? We're trying to build some kind of a platform where we can get up near God's level and say, now God, I've I've done some, a lot of really hard things. Now can we talk? And you're trying to put yourself on the same place as God. And you're missing the fact that no amount of good works or self-denial will ever win His favor. It's a gift. There are those people who view those who are Christians as this person right here. No parties, no ice cream, and certainly no smiling whatsoever, right? And if you look at that, you just say, man, you really don't know Jesus. He was accused of being a glutton, which, kids, that means people who just eat and party too much. Of being a drunkard. Of hanging out with the wrong kind of people. Read the Scriptures 
realizing he took on all of mankind when he became a man. And there's humor in there. It wasn't this tight-lipped, stern librarian that we sometimes get the picture of Jesus. So what does this mean? Here's what it means. It means that we turn from our old life of sin. Colossians 3.3, 3, that's a good one to write down and memorize. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. He goes on to say in verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And if you don't know what that is, look at verse 6 of Colossians 3. It tells you. It spells it out for you. Here are the deeds of the earthly nature that we're to put to death. We are now living for the sake of Christ in every way and not for the sake of self. Look at Philippians 3, verse, starting in verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. It's a parable of the pearl of great price, and the the essence of that is once you find that one thing worth absolutely living and dying for, everything else begins to fade into absolute meaninglessness. The very things we used to run after and treasure and try and grab... Suddenly it's like, oh yeah, that. I forgot all about that. What a trip. You're wasting all your energy on that $2 bill? And it just it becomes nonsense to you. It becomes rubbish to you. I wish I could stand here and tell you I've arrived at some level that all the stuff of this world seems like rubbish to me. This passage shows me I have a long way to grow. Oh, that we might value Christ in such a way that everything else seems like rubbish. This is where denying the self comes in uh, and and this idea of dying to self, the fact that we've already died when we're His. You know that death hurts, right? Death is painful. Some of you have tasted that recently and know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you kids may have had a close relative. Maybe you've even had an animal die. Just death is painful. It's separation. You realize there's a an eternal non-going back to that way that it was before. As you have instances in your home, you parents, when your kids are there and they do not want to do whatever you're asking them to do, when they do not want to yield their rights for the sake of a sibling or for the sake of your will, you know what you can do? You can stop right there make it a teachable moment and say this, I understand that you don't want to do that. I really do. But do you know that in doing this, you're being just like Jesus? You're becoming a servant. You're doing the hard work of what it looks like to lay down your will and to do what Jesus said to do, and that is to think of other people as more important than yourself. Acknowledge that it's hard. This is difficult. The tears are real and I can identify with those. But you're still going to do it. I'm training you to be like Jesus. And the other thing you can do is celebrate in your home whenever you see that going on. Because that is not our natural nature to do that. It is not my nature to let you go first ever. Ever. When anyone does that, you're reflecting the image of God. When you do that as a Christian, to willingly do it not even for their sake, but for the sake of your Lord, you're mimicking Jesus. God, if it's at all possible, would you allow me not to go to the cross? That's Jesus in the garden. It's going to hurt like nothing's ever hurt before, but not my will, your will be done. And that's the prayer of the Christian. I just have a little thing in your notes that says invitation of Jesus. You can write down rich young ruler there. Jesus invited people different kinds of ways. And one of the ways he invited was a rich young ruler comes up and basically is self-righteous, basically is looking to be justified. And Jesus, instead of having someone come and say, I'll follow you, and he says, great, we've got a winner. Step right over here to this tent. It's just a quick little prayer, a little signature. We're going to send you something. Good, we got one. Next. Who's up next? You know what he did? He just, he just cut right to the heart of this guy. And the rich young ruler wasn't willing to admit need. 
He wasn't willing to lay down his real God, which was stuff and material and wealth. And he went away sad. And Jesus didn't chase after him and go, wait, I'll make the deal better. Sign now, I'll give you some free knives. I mean, he didn't do any of that. He knew what he was calling him to. And he let him go away sad. Are you and I willing to let people go away sad? Doesn't mean we obnoxiously come up and try to, you know, pin them on their sin. But are we calling them the same way Jesus called them? Take up your cross daily is the next thing Jesus says. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily. People misuse this saying all sorts of ways. This idea of, oh, this is just my cross to bear. Again, the people he's speaking to, this is a real cross. Death wasn't done on the evening news, kind of in a behind closed doors. It was open and it was visible and it was ugly and it was shameful and it was torment. And that's the very word Jesus used to say, come after me. Take up your cross. The criminal was forced to carry a beam of his cross to his own execution. I put a noose up here because a noose is just scary. You just know what a noose is about. You go, that's just, I don't even want to think about that. Isn't that what you naturally want to do as an American? Eh, get that off. But that's the language Jesus is, is using. I don't know if you would have said this, but slip a noose around your neck every single day. You know where that leads. You know the progression of that. That is a one-way journey that you're not coming back from. And that's what Jesus said to do every single day. Do you see why these are hard sayings? Eee, I thought this was all about, you know, free food. Kind of a party atmosphere. I don't think I want to do that. Jesus is speaking of a very real literal cross as he would eventually go to. Suffering for Jesus. I don't know if you've ever been like me and given lip service to the fact that we'd suffer for Jesus, but then you look at the life of Peter. You look at the life of his disciples who couldn't even pray with him for one hour. They wimped out. Things got a little tough in the, in the uh, trial. Every one of them deserted him. They ran from him. I'm sad to report that that would, I feel like that's almost marked my life more than the heroic one who would stand up and suffer for Jesus. Suffering for Jesus. Uh, turn in your Bibles just quickly to 1 Peter chapter 4. And I want you to read some instruction that we have here. Some people have gotten really off in their theology about suffering even and taught some heinous lies to people. And people believe it. And I would liken it to a heavy burden that the Pharisees were accused of putting on people. We are called to suffer says, everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's your calling. That's your lot in life. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says this. <clears throat> Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the suffering of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should be not as a murderer or thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Look down at verse 19. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Three things I just want to point out about suffering. Suffering and trials are to be expected. Jesus said, in this life, you will have trials. That's true for everyone, Christian or not. Following Jesus or not, it's just a hard life, right? But as a Christian, don't think it's strange when things are there. And don't suffer for the wrong reasons. He says, suffer for the right reasons. Sin suffering is not glorious. We make wrong choices. We make bad uh, investments with our time, with our effort, with our emotion. And there are sometimes consequences to pay. Very real, very painful consequences to pay. Jesus says, Paul says here, or Peter says, suffer for the right reasons. Suffer for Jesus' sake. Finally, commit yourself to God and continue to do good in suffering. Write this passage down. We're not going to read it, but 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. And you can read right on down for about eight verses. 
Paul, defending his apostleship, explains all the things he went through in suffering for the name of Christ. Of going through torment for the name of Christ. Paul modeled for us what it looks like when he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And the invitation here for this one is, again, don't turn there, but in Luke 14, it said large crowds followed him. Right again, right about the time he builds up a large following. And how does Jesus proceed with the invitation process? Lighten the load a little bit, make it a little bit more rosy, and then zing them later on as they start following? No, right then and there, it's like he draws this line in the sand. He says, you want to come on my team? And he has like this verbal hazing process. I want to be a Marine. It looks cool to jump out of things and have a parachute and have a gun. Cool. You know what you get to do? It's called boot camp. We're going to beat you up in every way imaginable. Who's with us? <laughs> oh, I'll just watch the movie. You know, it's, a lot of people just don't want to come after that. Jesus did the same thing. He drew a line. I'm looking for a few good men and women. I don't want quantity. I want quality. Because that's the army I'm building. That's the way Jesus invited people. Come and die is the astonishing invitation of Jesus. Finally, he just says, follow. Do these things. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Come and follow me. The demand to follow means that we join him in what he came to do. That was alluded to when Kurt spoke on the flock of God. We join in on what the master is doing. If we're sheep following a shepherd, we're all about what the shepherd's doing. We don't have our little side business, our side program. All of that serves the purposes of the one that we have chosen to follow. What did Jesus come to do? For even the Son of Man came to serve others, to give His life as a ransom for many. For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And in John 12, now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify Your name knew why he was here, knew where he was going. John Piper, in a book called What Jesus Demands, said this, and we'll wrap up with this. He says this, If you follow Jesus only because he makes life easy now, it will look to the world as though you really love what they love and Jesus just happens to provide it for you. Catch this second part. But... If you suffer with Jesus in the pathway of love because He is your supreme treasure, then it will be apparent to the world that your heart is set on different fortune than theirs. Do we love Jesus because He provides friendship? Do we love Jesus because He provides emotional support and someone to talk to when we're lonely? Those are all things that we could have without God. We could create a vain God that doesn't exist and, and have all those things. Or do we value and treasure Christ simply for the sake of who He is? And no matter what we get out of it, that's why we value. I want to invite just Alex and Rob up. And we're going to close in a song. But before we do, I want to read for you a story of a guy many of you may have heard of before. His name is Jim Elliott. And there's a really good movie depicting some of what Jim Elliott was all about. But Jim Elliott was born in Portland, Oregon, 1927. <clears throat> His parents were disciples of Jesus and they raised their children accordingly, taking them to church and reading the Bible regularly. Jim professed faith in Jesus at the age of six and grew up in a home where obedience and honesty were strictly enforced. The Elliott parents encouraged their children to be adventurous, however. And as a result, they allowed them to be mischievous and encouraged them to appreciate outdoor activities. In the fall of 1945, Jim entered Wheaton College to train for mission work. While there, he met a missionary from Brazil and knew that God had called him to South America to serve him. That call would lead him to the jungles of Ecuador to share Christ with a tribal people. He and four other missionaries, including pilot Nate Saint, made their contact with their airplane with the Alka Indians 
using a loudspeaker and a basket to pass down gifts. After several months, the men decided to build a base a short distance from the Indian village along the river. After a risky landing in a thick forest, they were approached by a small group of Alka Indians. They even gave an airplane ride to one curious man that they called George. Encouraged by these friendly encounters, they began plans to visit the Alkas. But their plans were preempted by the arrival of a larger group of ten Alka men who killed Elliot and his four companions on January 8, 1956, during one of their visits. Elliot's mutilated body was found downstream. He was 28 years old. Seeing how his life ended makes this journal entry, which I'll elaborate on for you, seem all the more prophetic and all the more profound and powerful in light of how he lived his life. He wrote in his diary these words, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. God, I pray that you would move in this place this morning in a powerful way. That God not tragically or bemoaning the decision, but that joyfully we would run to you Our hearts would be so captivated by You and Your love and the truth that You offer us that no matter what the other offer would be, we would never turn back. But all to Jesus surrender. Thank You, God, for the call, for the invitation. In Your high and holy name we pray. Amen. I would just say this as we sing this song. Some of you need to give your life to Jesus Christ. You've never made a decision. You've never responded to the call of Jesus, to the invitation of Jesus. His disciples at one point, when lots of people were leaving Him, Jesus turned and said, Are you going to go also? They said, Jesus, we've left everything to follow You. And besides, You alone have the words of life. It's like they were caught between a rock and a hard place. There's no way we'd go back to that. You're you're exactly what we've been looking for our entire life. If you need to come and repent, lay your life down before Jesus. Confess your sin. Commit your life to Him. Don't wait. Don't wait. While the guys and gals sing the song, I just invite you, if you want to... If you want to come and talk to me, I'd be more than happy to to chat. If more than one come, come and just kneel. Come and be in this front row and pray. Community group leaders, come and pray with people if people come forward. Come and respond to Jesus today if you don't know Him as your Lord and Savior.